Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Helper. And I am the other host, Aaron Maite. How's it going, Aaron? It's going well. It's going well. How are you? Caffeinating. Okay, that's important. I never stay hydrated, though. Are you good at drinking water? I think I'm pretty good at drinking water, yeah. How do you make yourself do it? I think about how water sustains life, and I just uh, say I want some of that. It does. This does sustain life, and we're filled with it, and it makes us feel so much better, but I'm very bad at it. Do you, like, wake up and have it right away? Do you have it throughout the day? I do, and I'll say this. You know, living in the New York City area, we are blessed with incredible tap water. I think it's among the best tap water in the world. So I think that makes it easier because you don't have to go through the whole filter thing. I right. just, you know, um, I've lived, I've lived in several places and I'm just telling you, New York city water, man, it's for all the problems of living here. The water is unbeatable. How's Vancouver water? It's fantastic too. It's really oh, okay. Good. Do you want to name names and tell us where it's not good? The water? No, I don't because I don't, you know, I don't want to start, you know, doing a, a water hierarchy. And, right. and of course there are people watching this. living. Yeah, people watch us who live in places probably where the water isn't that great. And uh, water should be great everywhere. It, it's it's dumb that some places get better than others. I'm just saying is um, water's great. Yeah. So, yeah. Which makes my non-drinking of it all the more shameful. It is. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna make a commitment to you guys because sometimes it's easier to be accountable when you make an agreement to others as opposed to yourself. I'm going to have how much water should I commit to having? Well, you know, first of all, the 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 trope you get about we should have eight glasses a day, that is overblown from what I All right. Mean. That's too much. So don't you don't have to commit to that. Right. How about why, four? Why don't you commit to four? Yeah, there all we right, go. All right, that's good. Yeah. I want to be a realist. I don't want to set myself up to fail. So maybe eight is set up for failure. So we'll do four. That sounds great. Great. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, useful idiots, for keeping me for holding me accountable. <laughs> I know you're gonna do it. And as always, you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com where you can sign up to uh, support us, get bonus content, including our Thursday throwdown, and be a member of the Absurd Arena where you interact with us and other useful idiots and pose questions. So, Wilson, what do we have this week from the Absurd Arena? So after last week's Thursday throwdown where we saw that J.P. Morgan executive talking about how Wall Street was banking on Biden running again so that they would never have to give health care to the working class. We wanted to ask people this week about the idea of voting and whether they choose to or not. And a lot of people seem to have an idea of if I could have a politician with even one good thing that they were going to come through on and they feel that it hasn't happened. And a lot of people have become discouraged. They vote third party or a bunch said that the last time they voted was either George McGovern, Ralph Nader or Roger McBride, which was many, many years ago. So Katie McGovern. and Aaron, yeah. in the absurd arena, we want to ask, does voting have the ability to change anything? Are you voting for something good or against a worse candidate? And is voting between two corporate party candidates truly having a say in democracy? Well, I'm going to take an unpopular, perhaps, view, not unpopular out there in the real world, but maybe unpopular out there in the real uh, useful idiots watching world, which is a real world. It's just a smaller world. It's a subset, a subsection of the world. I'm going to say that I do think voting against the the greater evil it's not that it, it's harm reduction that's how I, I see it as harm reduction yeah look uh i advocated for joe biden to uh become president over trump and look where that got me we got a uh, you know world threatening proxy war with russia that i'm not sure trump would have 
made happen. I don't know. I mean, maybe the policy would have been exactly the same, but given that this is happening under Biden, I have to uh, question that. And accordingly, my argument that Biden was the lesser evil than Trump, uh, I, I, ha- I have to admit, I don't think is borne out, especially since one of the main reasons I advocated for it was that Biden was going to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal, which right. Trump tore up. And Biden didn't do that. Um, and also halt uh, support for the Saudi war on Yemen, which is uh, really rebranded more than anything. Which Biden else. just rebranded. Now, of course, the Saudi war in Yemen has seen a ceasefire, and maybe you can credit the U.S. partly for that, but I don't think so, actually. Um, so, look, uh, my most recent example of voting for the lesser evil uh, hasn't exactly borne out. But I, in general, I, I agree with Katie that I, I do think that you sometimes have choices where you could, if voting will stop the worst person from coming in, you have to think about, you know, not what kind of candidate you'd want to see, but also what is going to be the impact on the world's most vulnerable people. And sometimes the smallest differences between the world's most powerful people can make a huge impact for the world's most vulnerable. That's just true. And in the case of Joe Biden and Trump, I can't say that that actually applies, but uh, there are other cases where I do think you can make that argument. And uh, so I don't think voting is is futile. I do think that we need to show Democrats as, you know, if you consider yourself a progressive, I do believe in not just giving your vote over to Democrats and not asking anything for it. Because, you know, as Lawrence O'Donnell once explained, Democrats know that progressives will always vote for them. So they'll never have to give them anything. And that's just right. We they have nowhere to go. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the way I see it is that voting what we can do is we can vote for people who will make it easier for us to make change. So it's not that the change will come from above without major organizing and mobilizing and being out in the streets, but certain people will be more receptive to that than others. Yeah. And so, so for example, if there's a candidate who wants to like cut social security and Medicare and one candidate who doesn't, um, even if the candidate who doesn't want to cut, Social Security, Medicare is awful on a million other things. Right. Uh, when you take away the floor from people uh, and you deprive them of the basics, I think that makes it even harder for anything to happen. And also, you're, I think more importantly, you're sentencing millions of vulnerable people to an even tougher life. So why would right. you want to allow that to happen? So, you know, but this is tough. But this is tough. And then, you know, then there's the argument, well, that, you know, the flip side to what I, the argument I just made is that, well, Things have to get worse for things to get better. Right. I don't I don't want to believe that, uh, but I have to also admit that there is historical precedent for that, for that being true. Look at the Great Depression. The Great Depression did lead to some important social um, programs that happened because the ruling class realized that if they didn't give this to the, the working class, they'd be overthrown. Right. You know, and There'd that was an born of this. Or yeah. Bedlam, yeah. yeah. But of course, we also had an FDR, which Biden is not. As much as he likes to pretend he is, and other people like to pretend he is. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. So that's the absurd arena. It was thought provoking. Very thought provoking. So not only do you have the option, uh, the opportunity, really, the luxury of joining our Substack, which is pretty exciting. You get extended interviews and bonus content, including Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness. But you also uh, can join us if you prefer locals, if you're more of a Rumble person, because we're also on Rumble. So if you're a Rumble person, they have their own 
um, way of getting exclusive content, and that's something called Locals. So what are we at at Locals, Wilson? It's usefulidiots.locals.com. So there you have it. There's your other option. So you have two choices because we give you choices because we believe in the power to choose. Freedom of choice. We're pro-choice here. We believe in it so much that we're actually also in talks with Friendster. Uh, to start usefulidiots.friendster.com. Uh, right. Uh, High-level discussions, heated talks. There's been heated, a lot of back yeah. and forth. Yeah, a things have gotten acrimonious, but we're hoping to reach an agreement there so we can bring you our, our content on Friendster as well. So stay, so stay right. tuned for So that. first, we're going to try to bring back Friendster. Right, yeah. And we're going to get on Friendster, yeah. 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 All right, so let's turn to the four basic food groups. What do we got for Democrats suck, Aaron? All right, so for Democrats suck, let's turn to Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who is uh, bringing back a term that we all thought was archaic, a thing of the past. And that is this concept of the clash of civilizations. This is a theory put out by Samuel Huntington, a political scientist, which posited that, you know, Harvard, of course. Yes. Yeah. That posited basically that we're in a, you know, we're in a new after the Cold War. The new thing is a clash of civilizations between basically enlightened Western uh, civilization and the backward guys. And so. It, that's been widely mocked and discredited as being racist and stupid. But guess what? Sheldon Whitehouse says that Samuel Huntington was right. Let's bring back the clash of civilization. So here he is. Um, I will start with the thesis that informs my work in this space. And that is that, uh, in general, Samuel Huntington was right. We are involved in a clash of civilizations. But I believe he defined wrongly the boundaries, the line of contact, if you will, in that clash. In my view, the line of contact in that clash of civilizations is between rule of law nations and nations where a shadowy regime of kleptocracy and criminality controls the public sphere and the politics. But first of all, he mentioned his thesis. Like, is he going to grad school now at the Atlantic Council? Is that what's going on here? Sheldon, are you doubling as a grad student while also serving in the Senate? That's a dual loyalty. You can't yeah. be loyal to academia and the Senate. Not in this civilization. We can't have no. that. No, no. Pick Maybe one, in pick the shadowy lane. kleptocratic one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, of course, then he talks about how our civilization respects the rule of law and we're above criminality and kleptocracy. Yes, uh, in a country controlled by a handful of oligarchs. And that is occupying, for example, uh, Syria without permission from the government right. we of course love the worship law uh, uh, we of course worship the rule of law uh, in our civilization yeah unlike those baddies and of course even those countries which i think white house would describe as uh not so great on rule of law like saudi arabia we're happy to support them in their unjust illegal wars they're definitely inside our civilization absolutely yeah. absolutely i can you know you had an observation about Sheldon Whitehouse the other day on Monday morning, our show, uh, when he was in Ukraine. I did. Yeah, it looked like he was fidgeting a lot. I feel like he probably had to go to the bathroom. He was standing behind Lindsey Graham. And maybe it was because his mind was in that Samuel Huntington thesis mode. Um, he was so excited about it. He was about to to explode. Yes. <laughs> and needed a restroom. Well, you know, uh, and speaking of Ukraine, let's just look at an example of how uh, we're bringing civilization, our civilization to Ukraine under, you know, the the generous tutelage of the U.S. This is how Ukraine right now is developing. Um, Ukrainian President Zelensky spoke about this recently, about the kind of place that Ukraine is becoming. 
in the U.S.-led civilization. Here he is. It is obvious that American business can become the locomotive that will once again push forward global economic growth. We have already managed to attract attention and have cooperation with such giants of the international financial and investment world as BlackRock, JP Morgan, and Golden Sachs, such American brands as Starling or Westinghouse have already become part of our Ukrainian way. Your brilliant defense systems, such as HIMARS or Bradley's, are already uniting our history of freedom with your enterprises. We are waiting for Patriots. We are looking closely at Abrams. Thousands of such examples are possible. And everyone can become a big business by working with Ukraine in all sectors from weapons and defense to construction, from communication to agriculture, from transport to IT, from banks to medicine. And I believe that freedom must always win. Well, great news for Zelensky. He just got a commitment from the U.S. for Abrams tanks, although it's going to take him a long time to get there, along with German Leopard tanks that we're going to talk about in this week's Thursday throwdown. But just look at the bounty that uh, U.S.-led civilization has brought to Ukraine. Uh, They get to uh, work with and be um, uh, in, in business with such defenders of the rule of law and opponents of criminality as BlackRock. And Goldman Sachs, who Zelensky thanks in his comments there. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I mean, there is money in war. Absolutely. And look, uh, it's not just Zelensky saying this. It's it's Goldman Sachs and BlackRock saying it too. And, and let's look at this. This is from a dispatch from Davos, the gathering of the global elite. Uh, recently, the Washington Post, where they've talked about what Goldman Sachs and BlackRock are saying about opportunities in Ukraine. At the same breakfast session, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, spoke of his plans to help coordinate billions of dollars worth of reconstruction financing for Ukraine, saying he hoped the initiative would also turn the country into a, quote, beacon of capitalism, end quote. David Solomon, CEO of Goldman Sachs, spoke cheerily of Ukraine's post-war future, quote, there is no question that as you rebuild, there will be good economic incentives for real return and real investment, end quote. Wow. What what a great what great news for Ukraine as they're currently undergoing a catastrophic war. The defenders of civilization from BlackRock and Goldman Sachs are talking about what great opportunities their misery will bring them in the future to turn them into what the head of BlackRock calls a beacon of capital. I think uh, some uh, former president had another word for that. It was called uh, the military industrial complex. Yeah, and he should have added financial congressional media complex too, right. because they're all profiting all of this and celebrate. There's you know celebrating what great business opportunities there are in Ukraine as the country is currently being destroyed, and it's uh, that's where our Western civilization is at. So thank you, Sheldon Whitehouse, for making that so plain for us. Yes. All right, what do we have for Republican side? So for Republican suck, we're going to turn to a good friend of show uh, Ron DeSantis. So we're going to play a video of him basically uh, advocating for getting rid of unanimous juries. Unanimous juries are used in criminal cases, which means that you have to have every single member vote to uh, convict a defendant. So let's see what he has to say about unanimous juries and the death penalty. 
I think it was an 11 to 1 decision where 11 said he should get capital punishment, one said no, and we don't know what went into that, but I do think there are people who get on these juries who never intend to administer capital punishment. And so uh, that, there, there was court decisions, all this other stuff. Bottom line is that can probably be changed by statute. And it's one thing to say, yeah, I mean, obviously a majority of the jury has to, maybe a super majority, but to have one person be able to veto that. And the thing about it is, is there's certain crimes where any punishment other than that just doesn't fit the crime. And this is an example of that. And so I was very disappointed to see, because I think it didn't represent the sense of the community, and I think it was really based on one person's more idiosyncratic views. So fine, have a supermajority, but you can't just say of one person. So maybe eight out of 12 have to agree, or, or something, uh, but we can't be in a situation where one person can, can just derail this. And he's referring to, by the way, the decision to not give the death penalty to the Parkland shooter. That's what he's lamenting. What's interesting is that, first of all, this is obviously a terrible Republicans uh, suck. This is obviously a Republican sucking because uh, unanimous juries are part of the way that we safeguard people's liberty. You want it to be unanimous when you're voting to sentence someone to death. I, of course, don't believe in the death penalty anyway. But even to the extent that it exists, I think it's a pretty big decision and you should have unanimity. But the the history of non-unanimous juries is actually a pretty scary one, which is appropriate because uh, it's something that I'm sure Ron DeSantis was very happy about. So just looking at, at the history, Louisiana and Oregon are the only states who recently had non-unanimous juries. That means that even if one or two uh members of the jury voted against convicting someone for a certain crime, they could still be found guilty for that crime. And interestingly enough, the United States Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional in 2020. And the Oregon Supreme Court even ruled that all state prisoners convicted by non-unanimous juries uh, are entitled to have their cases reconsidered. So that means they get a new trial or they reach a plea deal or they're just released. But uh, What's interesting is the very problematic origins of these non-unanimous juries. So it was first adopted by Louisiana in 1898. And what it did was it allowed mostly white juries to convict a black defendant over the objections of, let's say, one, two or three black jurors who voting to acquit. The other law, the Oregon law, was adopted uh, in the 30s after one jury member voted against convicting a Jewish defendant of murder. And uh, this is how the Morning Oregonian, which is a newspaper, this is what their op-ed, this is an op-ed from that newspaper responding to the fact that this Jewish defendant was not uh, convicted of murder. It says, this newspaper's opinion is that the increased urbanization of American life and the vast immigration into America from Southern and Eastern Europe of people untrained in the jury system have combined to make the jury of 12 increasingly unwieldy and unsatisfactory, end quote. So basically they were saying ethnics were incapable of being good jury members. So this is the uh, precedent that uh, Ron DeSantis is attempting to return to. I do have a good suggested slogan for Ron DeSantis. I'm sorry to give out, you know, free uh, PR, but I, okay. you know, but, but it can be, how about he campaigns on like democratize the death penalty or, Diversify like the death penalty, you know? Yeah.
Um, just if he wants something catchy, I don't know. I, again, I'm not in the business of helping out, uh, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis, but right. um, you know, it's really it, responsible a... because I'm sure he watches the show, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, democratize uh, the death penalty. Yeah, democratize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, stop the tyranny of the uh, of the unanimous uh, jury. You know, yeah. everybody. Let's democratize the, the the death penalty. Yeah. So that's my Republican suck. That is, that is a very good Republican suck. Thank you. So for isn't that weird? Uh, check out this headline coming out of chicago muggers with manners bizarre moment chicago hijackers armed with guns politely ask victim who they called sir for his car keys and even hold his pizza for him while he gets them out of his pocket and there's video of this it's caught on tape Thank you, you betcha. An unusual carjacking caught on camera. This video is from CWB showing a group of men with guns politely asking the victim for his car keys, calling him sir and even thanking him and then giving him his pizza back. CWB reports this happened in the 600 block of West 29th Street Saturday. You know, we've talked about getting carjacked before, Katie, on the show. Um, And if you're going to get carjacked, really nice to get your pizza back. Right. You know, I agree. I mean, that just made me, I'm not going to lie, really hungry for pizza. Yeah. It would be very upsetting to be carjacked and deprived of your pizza. Put this man in a pizza campaign. Let's go national with this. You know, whatever pizza chain out there is looking for a, a viral campaign, this guy, and maybe the carjackers too, should should be in, should be signed oh, up. Oh, yeah. For that's a, who a, I thought you campaign. meant, the carjackers. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about the victim. I mean, is he really a victim if he gets to keep his pizza? <laughs> Unclear. <laughs> Would you rather be hijacked and keep your pizza or keep your car but have your pizza taken from you? Oh, that's a tough decision. Yes. Really? That's a, that's it's a like a decision. Sophie's choice. Well, put her in a pizza campaign. Let's let's bring the band back together and sell some sell some pies. Sell some pies, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, sir, for being such a, a polite uh carjacker so for isn't that terrible we have a really cringe cringy moment joe biden uh doing something during a photo op with the golden state warriors so instead of telling you what he does let's just watch the video of what he does What is happening there is that Joe Biden is uh, engaging in a photo op with the Golden State Warriors, and he thought it would be a good idea to take a knee. Uh, And what makes it extra weird is that he's, like, grinning, because taking a knee is supposed to be something serious, right? So taking a knee started with Colin Kaepernick, who was protesting against uh, police brutality, And then it kind of also uh, became a thing once again in uh, after the murder of George Floyd. It's basically it's a way to say Black Lives Matter. You probably don't want to be grinning while you do it. I mean, we already saw Democrats do this not grinning. And that was painful enough when they wore kente cloths and uh, took a knee uh, 
in the halls of Congress. Now you have to see uh, Joe Biden doing this while grinning, which is just weird. And it's obviously very uncomfortable for Kamala Harris, who says out loud, I'm not doing that. Yeah, and that reminds me um, when Colin Kaepernick kicked all this off, the quarterback for the 49ers. Uh, Obama, you know, who uh, Biden was serving under, said basically he needs to think about the grief he's causing to military families or something like that. Just Obama totally threw him under the bus. So here now is Obama's successor now just kind of mocking or making light of that whole issue, which was very, very serious. And Colin Kaepernick lost his career over that. And uh, for Biden, it's a joke. And I don't know who advised him to do that, but man, yeah. that is not a good look. And also Kamala Harris herself said that that was the Russians doing the Colin Kaepernick controversy. Yes, she did. And let's go to that video for those who have not seen it. So that's what they start to do. Right. That's what they start to do. They did it then. They will do it now. You know, people have said, if you look at, for example, the whole Remember the whole, the heat that ended up around the bend the knee and Colin Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. Many smart people have said it actually was not a thing. Mm -hmm. The Russian bots started taking that on. Really? Yes. You feel like you're being targeted by Russian bots now? Well, we already know we are. Oh, the Russian bots. The Russian bots. Is there anything that they're not behind? They're everywhere. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Who is protecting Kamala from the Russian bots right now? We only hope it's the it's well, the best. Joe Biden who would take a knee for her. There we go. There we go. There we go. There you have it. Coming full circle. All right. And for those who want more, go to useladies.substack.com where you can get our Thursday throwdown, where this week we're going over many topics, including a new decision uh, by Germany and the U.S. to send battle tanks to Ukraine. What could go wrong? So for more, go to useladies.substack.com to sign up. Get the Thursday throwdown and all kinds of other good bonus content. And now you can go to usefulidiots.locals.com too. So for our interview this week, we are joined by Darsha Narvaez. She is professor of psychology emirata at the University of Notre Dame. Her books include Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality and the forthcoming book, The Evolved Nest, Nature's Way of Raising Children and Creating Connected Communities. Dasha Narvaez, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. To give people an introduction to your work, we thought we'd play a clip from uh, a film you made called Breaking the Cycle. We've been told a story that we are selfish, aggressive, rugged individuals. But if that were true, we should have no problem with physical distancing and self-isolation. The pandemic showed us that this story is not who we are. That's because we evolved in cooperative bands of kin and non-kin, where we were nurtured and welcomed by all members of the community. We lived together, we gathered food together, we sang together, and we danced together. We knew it would have been impossible to survive on our own. But together, we thrived. Today, we are living in a culture that goes against everything it means to be human. Our culture emphasizes toughness over tenderness, isolation instead of togetherness, even for babies. As a result, we are depressed, 
anxious, chronically ill, and at the bottom of every international indicator for health. We are stuck in a cycle of competitive detachment where we feel disconnected from others and even ourselves, while at the same time feeling we have to compete for anything worthwhile. There's a way not only to break this cycle, but to create a new one, one that reclaims our humanity and helps us heal ourselves and our culture. We can create a cycle of connected, cooperative companionship so before we talk about how we create that connected cooperative companionship, I'm curious about where the story that we are by nature competitive, where does that story come from? Oh, well, scholars uh, puzzle over this uh, and there are multiple theories about it. From my perspective, it starts with the lack of uh, nested care that we provide children, which started long ago uh, in some societies that became so-called civilized with hierarchies. And they relied on forced labor of one kind or another, which we still do. We force people into wage labor, right? Instead of letting them freely decide what they wanna do with their lives. Uh, and so it's um, the, what happens then is this top down um, kind of trickle up kind of society where the, the well-being is, is oriented to those at the top. Everyone at the bottom then is stressed and overworked and is unable to actually be human <laughs> towards children and they have to do uh, minimize care and make up stories for why things are the way they are. So it's happened over thousands of years to get us to this point where we uh, kind of forgot who we are. Uh, there are still societies around the world though that um, um, resist this hierarchicalism and think it's immoral. Uh, hunter-gatherer societies. And so we have a lot to learn from them because they successfully uh, live in egalitarian and healthy, happy ways, uh, unlike us. Can you give us some examples of that, how their way of life differs from ours and you know how they approach maybe similar problems or issues that come up in their community? Well, these are generally, I just heard Jerome Lewis, anthropologist in London yesterday, talk about uh, the civilization of Central Africa, which is comprised of dozens of small band hunter-gatherers who live in the particular location and know that place well. They know how to thrive there in the forest uh, and how to interact with the animals so that they continue uh, their ways, their communities and the ways of the animals so they don't eradicate anything, but they're always in cooperative kind of relations with the natural world. So that's something that we have forgotten how to do in part because of this hierarchical system that is uh, gets bureaucratized and and gets very left brain oriented is the other problem. Um, when we undermine the care of children, we then leave them with not too much to go on except they go to school and then they're told to think, think, think. And that's, you know, what being a human is, is to think. Uh, which is one of the most dangerous things, according to most major religions. So in these societies, they they focus on being. They have all sorts of know-how. Mitis in, in the uh, Greek uh, word uh, the, the ancient Greeks used. And they know how to get along in so many ways with one another, um, 
<clears throat> babies learn this in the first years of life before language starts. When they're immersed in a very loving, uh, nested community, they're learning ways to start and stop conversations to make everyone else around them happy and because everyone wants to keep them happy. And so there's a mutual enhancement and play that goes on and on. And they, they spend their lives mostly in that kind of mindset and orientation to others. And they don't, uh, they're energetic and work for what needs to be done, gathering or hunting, uh, but it's all done voluntarily. There's no coercion. Coercion is uh, grounds for just dismissing the relationship. You just don't do that to anybody. But they're always uh, interacting too and com conversing and maybe arguing some of them. Uh, so it's uh, it's a very enlivened way to live. They sing a lot, they play a lot, they do a lot of heal healing trance, trance uh, healing kind of ceremonies. And uh, they know how to live well and they refuse to be uh, coerced into labor uh, farming, farming. They call those the farmers, the village people, uh, the, they're the ones who are roamers and they, the hunter-gatherers, are settled because they know this place and they know how to get along. And when you look at our Western capitalist society, how do you think we're doing in meeting all of these uh, needs? Yeah, well, <laughs> we keep getting worse at it, it seems to me, especially in the United States. If you've been here lately, it's about the worst place, I say, in the world to raise a child unless you're in a war zone, uh, because the supports are absolutely pretty much minimal. Can't even name what's supportive. We're one of the only countries that hasn't uh, doesn't have parental leave after birth of a baby. We haven't signed on to the Convention of the Rights of the Child, one of the few countries in the whole world. Uh, so we, we're not oriented to families and kids here, even though maybe the, the lip services. What, what are some of the healing things that people can do, especially people who don't necessarily live in uh, nature or don't live with a lot of other people around them or multi-generational communities? We have a lot of tools at evolvenest.org for people, individuals and groups. We did a study, I did a study with college students a few years ago that was published where we tried to increase nature connection. We called it ecological attachment. And they came in and did a pretest and were assigned to a condition. And the nature connection condition um, they read about how important it was, read a poem, and read an essay, and then they got to select 21 activities that they took along with them. And each day for the next three weeks, they pulled out one activity to do all day or during the day. Like, and this is on a college campus, so you, you, know, you can pick things that work on the college campus. Uh, pay attention to the clouds today. Uh, and so... As you walk across campus, acknowledge the trees so that it gets you back in your body, back in the present moment, into your senses. And that's building then your sense of being here as a member of the Earth community. And we found that the people who did that condition increased in their ecological attachment or nature connection, their empathy and their mindfulness. Now, there are other things to do. We have... Um, for those who didn't get raised in a nested way, um, most of us haven't been, didn't get raised that way. We have 28 days of self-calming. So the the uh, the nature experiment I just mentioned, we have, if you go to ecoattachment.dance, 
there's 28 things for you to do, one a day, just like the experiment. Then we've also set up 28 days of self-calming. So you can do one a day and see which thing works for you. And we have other tools like that. So there are ways to um, try to revamp your brain. In my Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality book, I, my longest chapter is about what to do now if you didn't get the nest. <laughs> it took me a whole year more to write that chapter because I was trying to help people uh, have some hope that just because we were not nested as children, that it all is not lost, right? So there are things we can do. Our brain is somewhat plastic as we age, uh, and there's uh, various ways to retool. Well, what can you tell us about what you've learned about the brain and how it can rewire to overcome some dysfunctional habits into a sort of a more healthy modality? Well, one of the best ways I always say for adults is play. Play with a young child. So a zero to six-year-old or, you know, someone who could run maybe a two to six-year-old uh, because they're ready to play and they don't have all the inhibitions that develop after that uh, from what adults tell them. Uh, and they will force you into being in the moment. You, you have, they won't let you just sit there, you know, you got to run and, and do things. And when you do that, your right hemisphere is growing. So what happens when we unnest children is we're undermining the development of the right hemisphere. It's scheduled to grow more rapidly in the first years of life, and it's the seat of all sorts of things, especially in the beginning, and that is self-control, self-regulation, the vagus nerve function, which uh, innervates all the major systems of the body, uh, empathy, higher consciousness. All these things are in that right hemisphere, but what we've done in our uh, civilization is we've shifted everything to the left hemisphere. Ian McGilchrist, uh, who wrote the book, The Master and His Emissary, talks about uh, all the experiments comparing the two sides of the brain and how the left uh, brain has taken over Western civilization, which has now taken over the planet. The left brain is only wired to itself, so it only knows itself, and it dismisses, dismisses and poo-poos the right hemisphere when it's underdeveloped. You want an integrated brain. You don't want one side or the other. But the left brain then thinks it knows everything and is very optimistic and loves control and loves dead things. It loves things categorized and controllable. And so you can see that's all over, coming all over the world. Uh, the right hemisphere is about living and life and, and dyna dynamic interaction and fluctuation is able to, you know, and find peace in, in the dynamism of the, the world. So when we uh, undermine child development, we're undermining that development. So what adults can do, because uh, therapists talk about adults coming into, into therapy after the children have left for college or they have an empty nest in the home, and the men typically are the ones who have more trouble thinking about what they might want to do with the rest of their life. They just want to go in their man cave, <laughs> and the, the recommendations is, ah, this is a signal that the right hemisphere has been underdeveloped. Let's go out there and play. Do something that keeps you in the moment, painting, dancing, uh, doing things with others that makes you stay present. And then that right hemisphere will grow and you will be able to be more empathic. You'll be more attuned to the world. You'll be able to feel more at peace. You'll get more connected to your intuitions, which is another part of what gets underdeveloped. So in childhood, if we unnest kids, we stress them out, we leave babies to cry, we leave them alone, we uh, force them. We punish them. 
uh, all that stuff is shutting them down, themselves down. They have to cut off their emotion systems. They have to cut off their intuition, their spirit, and they just have to survive this horrible prison, despairing world, right? Hopefully they survive. And then they get to school and they're told all oh, that. We don't want you to look out the window. Don't pay attention to the bird. You know, just learn this information and pass the test. And boy, you're a winner. And they have uh, Colin Turnbull, the anthropologist, talks about his uh, experience in British boarding school. It was horrible punishment and aggression. He was expected when he became a teenager to fight, fight, fight for the team and box and hit. And he felt empty, completely empty. And he contrasts that with the Mbuti, one of these Central African groups I mentioned, uh, whom he studied. And those adolescents, when they get to adolescence, those kids, uh, they're all ready for life because they've been encouraged, they've been play and they've been socially connected all the time and not punished but encouraged and loved and they're ready for life and he you know is extremely uh contrasting for him yeah it's funny when you mention kids because um i have so much fun like playing with uh my friend's daughter who's about to be four this month and i always have fun with her but the most fun i had recently or one of the most enjoyable things I've done recently is we had like an impromptu dance party. Yeah. Like you say, it's, you can't, you're in the moment and she's, I mean, it's just like hilarious and such a cute dancer and has so much attitude. You're kind of not on, like maybe you're on in a different way. You know, you're like, you're acting a way that's appropriate to kids. You're not like lost in your thoughts. You're just engaging with the kid. That's right. You're not in your head. You're in yeah. your body. You're in your heart, right? Yeah. Your spirit is right there. That's what you yeah. want. You want to spend as much time in that kind of space, that orientation as possible. And then you grow your full humanity. And I have this experience with nature where I can go weeks or even months just being in a city environment, only seeing, you know, an, uh, an urban space. And then I can go into nature. And then I have always have this moment where it hits me like, oh my God, this is amazing. And why haven't I been doing this more often? And I feel so alive, but then I'll go back to my normal city life and I'll just forget all that. Like how, how is it so easy to forget the benefits um, and just the, um, the, the, the vitality that comes from, from being in nature when you're living yeah. a, an urban kind of life? Yeah. Isn't that something uh, we, we grew up inside four walls and we think that's normal, right? That's just <laughs> It's kind of abnormal for an animal, right? Uh, yeah, so I, I was, my last class before I retired, I was teaching uh, and we were supposed to spend the second half of the semester outside with kindergartners doing nature connection activities while the pandemic hit right then. <laughs> so we had to regroup and everyone had to go home and I had someone in Singapore and someone in Colombia. And so they had to come up with ways to do nature connection wherever they were. And uh, gave them, they had a book with a lot of ideas that they read. And, and then they had to come up with the videos for the kids to watch about what they could do. Uh, and in one case, uh, my Colombian student lived in an apartment and they had a balcony. And happily, there was a nest in the, uh, the little uh, box, window box they had. So she was watching that. Another student in her apartment uh, grew bean seeds inside a plastic bag. You know, uh, others had plants. 
others had yards they could go out and watch the stars you know and things like that so wherever you are you can have a plant and talk to the plant the plant is alive right actually everything around you is alive it's just an illusion that it's solid and dead <laughs> but it's all alive with electrons and atoms and all sorts of things uh, that we don't quite understand but even looking out the window having a tree that you uh, say hello to every day uh, a dandelion in the crack in the sidewalk, right? Just paying attention. What's the wind like today? Where's the sun? Knowing what direction north is, you know, just orient yourself to where you are on the planet and where the water is coming from, where are the waterways around you. Learn your neighborhood, learn where the hills are, learn which plants are natives, which animals are natives, which birds, and how do you support those? So there's different ways to keep yourself tuned in, even if you spend a lot of time inside. Yeah, I find that I can spend like a lot of time inside because I work from home and it's a little, it's ridiculous. I live like two blocks from Central Park and I don't know what it is. I just get stuck. Like there are times that I don't leave the apartment and I, I have a similar, I guess, like I'm reminded of your questionnaire and like, why don't, it's so easy. All I have to do is literally, it takes me five minutes to get to Central Park. And there are days I just don't even leave the apartment. Let's see if I can remember it correctly. We used a technique in our um, experiment I mentioned. So there's this uh, analogy of a rider, an elephant, and a pathway. You have to direct the rider, and you have to motivate the elephant. So you direct the rider with some information. Uh, the motivate the elephant, get some reward. So what our students got, they got extra credit at the end of the three weeks, right? You have to set up a reward for yourself. Cappuccino. Um, there, you go. Cappuccino. there you go at the other end of the park yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then you you direct your path right you set the path well i have to go through the park to get to that cappuccino right so you, in a way that's how you build a new habit mm. this is heath and heath in their book switch does having not to, i'm gonna do that earlier in the show i made a promise i'm gonna drink more water so okay useful idiots listeners and viewers i'm also promising to go out to walk in the park Three days a week. That's my promise. But do um, photos of nature help? Is that, I don't know if you know that, but is that like a, a hack? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. When I had a cubicle as a graduate student, I got big posters of nature because yeah. I couldn't think it otherwise. Yeah, yeah, it does help. Your uh, forthcoming book, The Evolved Nest, has many examples of how animals uh, fit the needs of their habitat, of their community. Um, in ways that humans can learn from. Can you give us some of your uh, favorite examples of that? Yeah. Well, one that comes to mind because maybe of the where the conversation is is the beaver. We always think of beavers as hard workers, uh, and that's so true, right? They they uh, build dams and and create pools, which actually helps the eco ecological community wherever they are, <clears throat> keeping alive other animals over the winter in their lodges under the water. But they also play, <laughs> so it's not all about work. Uh, they have this kind of drivenness to build, 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 and uh, cut down little trees and and drag them across the water and strengthen their lodges and their dams. But they're also playing. And I think that's that's what we have to learn, right? Is to mingle, intermingle play and work. Uh, another one is uh, wolves. Wolves are one of my spirit animals. They really have a commitment to their family and to their young ones. And it's not just mom and dad. And we point out through the book and, and many of our animal 
cousins uh, communities, it's not just a mother raising the young, although typically it is. It's others, like in the penguins, the emperor penguins, the fathers nestling, nurturing the egg for six months or many months <clears throat> while the mother is off feeding. And then they uh, together, they they nurture the young. And uh, that's true for wolves as well. And I think our commitment to our children needs to match up with some of these animals who ensure that their young are going to get their needs met. And they will sacrifice, make sacred uh, the needs of their young in order to ensure that the community continues. What we've gotten into is this competitive orientation where we think somehow there's going to be a winner and, uh, and there's an end point for it. But the whole point of life is to keep things going. That's what play is about. It's an infinite game. Our, our universe, our planet, or, or our nature economy, nature's economy orients to infinite gains, right? Just keeping life going and going and going, not an end point with a winner. <clears throat> we have to get back to that. And I, the animals uh, in their ways of nurturing show us that. Just bonus round. Uh, what about the elephants? Yes, elephants are uh, really marvelous too, because they are a community right around that newborn. When the newborn is born out of the mother, the elephants come around and gather around like a physical nest uh, uh, to encourage the elephant, the baby to stand up and to start coming along. And they all walk around that elephant protecting as they go through the terrain. Uh, so it's it's a community uh, caregiving. It's a, a, an accompaniment to that child, not just the mom that's doing it. What about pigs? Know anything about pigs? We didn't. That's uh, a personal favorite for you, Katie. You have a yeah, soft personal favorite. Pigs. Yeah, I love pigs. Sorry, we didn't. We didn't do anything with pigs. Okay. I like jalapenos, though. That's why I don't eat. Um, I don't eat red meat or pork, and that was because I started not eating that when I was eleven because I loved pigs. I thought they were so smart and cute. And my friend at the time loved cows, so we respected each other's animals oh, too. Nice. They have those little black pigs, a little uh, miniature ones. I know they're so Blacks. cute. Yeah, aren't they? <laughs> I I came to this work more recently in my um, academic work. I've had multiple careers, so, uh, but this in my academic work, I started out moral development, and at first mm -hmm. it was all about reasoning, you know, and how people think and make decisions and follow through with their will and all that. Well, I I realized. When I started reading more widely, finding these anthropology reports, hunter-gatherer childhoods, finding the mammalian uh, effective neuroscience of animal um, brain development, and finding James Prescott's work on multiple societies, peaceable societies, are the ones that breastfeed for at least two and a half years and carry their children around. Uh, that ex explains 80% of the variants. Wow. The other 20% of the variants is there's no sanctioning of premarital sex. So there's a little openness to um, sexual relations. There's no sanctioning, like there's no penalizing for that. Right. right. Yeah. Anyway, all this stuff was just spinning around in my mind and the Iraq war, protesting the Iraq war and wondering what, how can people go to war with no, no reason, all this and all of it came together with realizing this uh, lack of, of, proper development for our species. And this is, you can see it now in the neuroscience that if you stress a baby routinely 
extremely, you're going to end up with a very stressed out personality, one that can't be themselves. They've got all these defenses put up there and they never can grow their true self because they're just in this fear state. And this is related then to morality. <clears throat> so you have an option every in every situation. You have an option of either bracing against the other in some way. You're going to, you know, I want to see it. I'm better than they are. I'm smarter than them, aren't I? Uh, you, you figure that out. And it's sort of authoritarianism, essentially. Uh, and if you don't feel better in whatever category it is, thinner, more beautiful, whatever, uh, then you withdraw and you, you, you uh, bow to the purity of the other. You withdraw yourself. You're never yourself because you're either out there like this or you're kind of absent. And that affects your morality because then your morality options are you have to make a someone's in need. Well, you're not going to help them because you're out you're you're hiding away or yes, I have to look smart and, and superior. Uh, you're not going to help them in a genuine, realistic, attuned way. So that's where the moral stuff comes in. We get into self-protectionism. You can see it all over the states. People get triggered easily and they go into, right? Or they withdraw and they're not able to connect and create and co-create our communities together as places we all want to be together. And I know you, you've written about the way that Darwin understood uh, human nature and how that evolved, no pun intended. Could you speak on that? Well, he talked about the moral sense. And he identified through the tree of life, other animals showing uh, aspects of the moral sense that people have, that humans have, such as enjoying being with other con specifics, people, of uh, individuals of your species, um, having empathy for those in your species. So we know there are various studies now showing empathy by rats. Rats will help their, their trapped um, mate instead of eating their favorite food, chocolate, uh, they'll go help because the, they have empathy more than they want uh, have greed. Wow. And so those are two and uh, the habits um, is set up to meet the needs or the issue, uh, the desires of the community and the ability to care about what the community thinks. And I've written about how all these things are failing in the States. Uh, that people are, there's more single adults than any other household in, uh, it's been increasing in the States. And that's strange for a social species. Like, don't you like to get, be with other people? Uh, and so that's the signal that the brain, the body isn't uh, setting up properly. So oxytocin system isn't set up properly. The vagus nerve, which is important for being able to be intimate with others, to be compassionate. Uh, and those things are now failing. People have, aren't able to build good habits. Uh, they don't have um, the ability to uh, get along in so many ways that are uh, contrary to Darwin's view. He thought it was genetic. Well, he didn't know about genes, but he thought it was inherited. And I'm saying, no, it's epigenetic. It's shaped after birth. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. And another website uh, to check out Darsha's work on is evolvednest.org. Yeah. And I learned a lot from that. That was really interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. And I feel like people more and more are looking towards, I don't know, people, like you said, Aaron, feel a lot of uh, despair 
And I think that uh, people are looking, even people who aren't otherwise interested in this way of thinking, I think are turning to it more and more. Well, I say amen. Amen to that. Yeah. It's it's very difficult to make sense of this awful world. And I I think, you know, and I just, it's always fascinating to learn about how the brain develops and how our civilization is what we like to call our enlightened civilization is, is far from enlightened and as many in some ways has regressed from how we used to be. And um, every time I learn about that, I, I learned something new and it's difficult to apply to daily life because of all the pressures on everybody to survive. But it's, you know, uh, it's always helpful to hear about different ways we could shift our thinking and our way of uh, living. And so thank you to Darsha Narvaez for, for coming on. Yeah, and definitely check out her websites because there are a lot of cool resources. All right. To get bonus content, go to usefulidiots.substack.com where you can sign up for the Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness, the absurd arena where you interact with other useful idiots and other bonus content. Yeah, and if you're a locals and rumble type of person, we're also on locals, usefulidiots.locals.com. All right, everybody. See you next week. See you next week. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 